All right, Revelation chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, I will read the entire chapter, and we will cover the entire chapter this evening. So after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 elders, and upon the thrones I saw... Sorry, around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, and in the center and around the throne four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. That's quite the scene, huh? (laughs) Quite the scene in the throne room of heaven. So we're now about to embark on this third major section and the largest section in the book of Revelation, which covers what what must take place after this. So the book in the beginning talks about things that were, things that are, and things that must take place after this. And here's where we are from Revelation 4 all the way To Revelation 20, we're going to be seeing the things that take place after this. And the after this would be from John's present time perspective at the end of the first century, after he has sent off and written those letters to the seven churches. But before we look at what we're going to see tonight in Revelation chapter 4, I think it might be helpful, considering especially the amount of time since we last were here, to just kind of review what we've seen so far. Because again, like... We're in a new major section, so it's probably good to just kind of review where we've been. And in Revelation 1, the opening chapter, we saw three main things in that chapter. It's the prologue to the book, which not only identifies Revelation as an apocalyptic prophecy, but also promises a blessing to the one who hears and the one who reads the words of this prophecy. But then we also saw it's what I like to call the epistolary greeting or the, the, the greeting that makes it sound like a letter where he says, I'm John, I'm writing to the churches in Asia, so on and so forth, in which John introduces himself and presents the Trinitarian greeting, the greetings in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the rest of chapter one is the vision of the exalted Christ in which Jesus then presents himself to John in this initial vision as the conquering judge who will return, and as the great high priest who tends to his church, the one who walks amongst the lampstands and cares for the seven uh, lamps on the seven lampstands. That was the things that were. Then the things that are, we saw in Revelation 2 and 3, where we see basically the state of the church as it is in that time at the end of the first century, in which John writes seven letters to seven churches in Asia. And the seven churches were Ephesus, which was the loveless church. It was a church that was rebuked, or well, it was commended for its great discernment. It was commended for its uh, great uh, zeal for the truth. But it was rebuked because it lost its love. It left its love. It left its love for Christ and 
became a loveless church. The second letter was to Smyrna, the persecuted church, the church that was where the synagogue of Satan was in the seat of Satan's power. Uh, Pergamos, the compromising church. Thyatira, the corrupt church. These were churches that had allowed false doctrine and false teaching to infiltrate the church and had become corrupted from within. You had Sardis, the dead church, which basically was no church at all. Philadelphia, the faithful church, the other church that had an open door set before it for ministry or the open door into heaven, as we'll see in Revelation 4. But it was a faithful church that had little power, but worked mightily in the Lord. And then finally, Laodicea, the lukewarm church, the church that was kind of like meh when it came to Jesus. They were just like, Jesus, yeah. yeah. And, you know, because of their being lukewarm, Jesus tells him, he says, you, I wish that you were either hot or cold. Because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. These seven churches represent the fullness of the church and present the full gamut and full range of issues that you would see in the church. So church suffering from persecutions without, church suffering from false teaching within. So the problems without, problems within, all kinds of churches. And the seven churches represent, in essence, the fullness of the church as a whole from throughout all the church age. But again, everything we've seen up to this point happens within a context at the end of the first century A.D. So now, as we get ready to move ahead into the book, into Revelation chapter 4 and beyond, we're going to now see matters that have, uh, we're going to see the things that take place after this. Now, Revelation chapter 4 and going on uh, introduces us, or is going to introduce us to a lot of things, visions and such, which have caused a lot of tension and a lot of dispute between interpreters because it seems like there are many interpretations of Revelation as there are interpreters of Revelation. <laughs> so it seems like every, every new person comes and tries to interpret Revelation comes with a new interpretation of it. But if you remember from our very first lesson when we looked at the introduction to this book, we presented four views of basically four views that are used as interpretive grids to understand the book of Revelation. I'm not going to quiz you on them. I'll, I've got them here. I'll tell you what they are. So don't, don't think this is a test. All right. But the first one was a preterist or a partial preterist view, which says that the visions in Revelation and their fulfillment are largely in the past. So from our perspective and from the perspective of even the author of Revelation, most of the, the visions that you see in the book of Revelation have already been fulfilled. The only thing that's left to remain is the return of Christ and the final judgment. The other side of the spectrum is the futurist school, which sees almost everything in Revelation as happening in a far distant future. So even from the perspective of the writers, even from our own perspective here in the 21st century, most of everything you see from Revelation 4 and on is in the future, yet to come. Which, really, that is, to me, in my opinion, I think that's just one of the more weaker interpretations because if, as I like to say, if it didn't mean anything for the people at the end of the first century who were reading Revelation for the first time, it can't mean that because it has to mean something for them. It has to be relevant for them because it was written to them initially. The third view, the historicist view, which sees the visions and their fulfillment as sort of like offering an outline of church history. And then finally, the idealist view, which sees the visions and their fulfillment as representing trends and forces in the ongoing warfare between the kingdom of God and the forces of evil. And then at that time, and I still hold this view, I argued for a mainly idealist kind of hybrid view. So I'm mainly in the, in the idealist camp, but I also see that these other views do have some merit to them. There are things that are still in the future yet to be fulfilled. There are things that have been fulfilled in the past. And you can kind of do see a kind of a scope of church history as you go through these things. But I don't like to put all my eggs initially in any of those baskets. I see it more as sort of the fulfillment of 
uh, trends and forces as we see the ongoing warfare between the kingdom of God and the forces of evil in this church age between the time of the resurrection and the time of the return of Christ. To support that, then, I think what we're going to see as we go through Revelation chapter 4 through 20, we're going to see seven cycles. Now, again, Revelation is very big on numbers, okay? The number 7, the number 12, the number 10, all kinds of numbers are all over the book of Revelation. And these numbers have significance. And 7 is a very specific, significant number. Because as we all know, seven represents fullness, it represents completeness, it represents perfection. And we have seven letters to seven churches, we have the sevenfold spirit of God, and now I think what we're going to see as we go through, we're going to see seven cycles of judgment, seven cycles of visions, I should say, that give us a glimpse into this period from between the resurrection of Christ and his return. And as I like to look at it, it's... Again, it's sort of like seven different camera angles, okay? So anybody who's a sports nut and you watch the football games and they want to show you the replay of the plays, how many, you know, how many different angles do you often get on these replays? You get like dozens of different angles. You get the turf camera, you get the sky camera, you get the end zone camera, you get the sideline camera, you get the camera that kind of swings on the thing you know, as, as the plays are going by. You get all these views of the same play. And I think these seven cycles, in a sense, are seven different perspectives of the same period of time that we're going to see unfold throughout the book of Revelation. Now, the emphasis of each of these cycles will be a little bit different, just like the emphasis of, of a different camera angle on a football play will be different. You know, like the end zone camera is going to show you the goal line, it's going to show you the ball breaking the plane, whereas maybe if you saw the overhead, you might not necessarily see that, but you might see whether or not the, the runner has his knee on the ground or whatever. The point being is that these cycles cover the same period, so there will be evidence of what we call prophetic recapitulation. Prophetic recapitulation as these elements of these visions overlap. But as we progress toward the end, as we get closer and closer to the end of Revelation, these, the focus of these visions then will be on the end of that period of time and on the return of Christ. So it'll, start, it'll just start to progress and it'll be more and more focused on the actual return of Christ as we're getting closer and closer to the end. But these cycles will focus on God's judgment of the wicked and his salvation and vindication of the righteous. So now as we get to the section we're going to look at, uh, before we get to the actual visions, these cycles of visions, the first vision John gets here is one of the heavenly throne room. It's a preliminary vision of the throne room. And what better comfort to give the persecuted church than to see that their God is on his throne, handing sort of, in a sense, the title deed of the earth to his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we'll see in chapters four and five. The, the scroll that the that the one seated on the throne gives to the lamb who was slain before time, in a sense, is the title deed of the earth, giving it to Jesus Christ as he will then rule and reign for all eternity. But tonight, for what we're going to look at in chapter 4, we're going to see basically three things. Uh, this chapter kind of breaks down to, you see the one who is seated on the throne, you're going to see those who are around the throne, and you're going to see the activity that takes place before the throne. So the one seated on the throne we see in verses 1 through 3 of Revelation chapter 4. And this new section of Revelation begins with familiar words that we see oftentimes that are transition words, where we see, after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first, vo the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. So this verse begins and ends with that phrase, after these things. So what are the things that this is taking place after? It's just what happened before, Revelation 2 and 3. You know, so the, after the letters to the churches, you know, John's like, so after I wrote these churches, these letters, after these things, I heard this voice and I was called up into heaven. So after our Lord Jesus has 
uh, Lord Jesus Christ and has his servant write these letters to the seven churches, John is invited to enter into the heavenly throne room. As we said, this marks a transition from the things happening in the church at the end of the first century to what's going to happen throughout the remainder of redemptive history. And the first thing Jesus wants the church to see is a picture of God in control upon his throne. Now let's describe the scene here a little bit first. So we have first this, we are introduced to this open door. Now we saw the open door before in Revelation 3.8. We had a nice little discussion about what it meant, whether it was an open door to ministry, which was possible, or whether it was referencing a little bit in ahead of time, the open door into heaven. We kind of leaned on that side because this church was one of the faithful churches. And because of its faithfulness, it was being allowed, it was being seen, the open door leading into heaven itself. But here in Revelation 4.1, the open door means that we are about to receive revelation from God. We're going to see this periodically through the book of Revelation. You also see it in some prophecies in the Old Testament you'll see this mention of a door opening or heaven being opened. And every time you see that phrase or hear that phrase, revelation follows. It's like heaven is opening and words are coming down now to the prophet to then present to the people of God. In fact, the book of Ezekiel itself starts with, this, with these words in Ezekiel 1.1. Now it came about in the 30th year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Kabar, among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. So here's Ezekiel. He's in exile and he is about to receive visions to give to the people in exile in Babylon. And the first thing he notes is that the heavens were open and he saw visions from God. We see it again later in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, verse 11, as Jesus is about to come on his white horse to conquer the world. John sees a vision. He says, I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. So again, after this notion of heaven opening, we are given then a picture of hidden truths as revelation is given to the prophet. So that's the first thing we see. The door is being opened into heaven. Second thing we see or hear in this sense is a voice that sounds like a trumpet. And this is the voice of Jesus, whose voice is described earlier in the book of Revelation as sounding like a trumpet. Just sort of like, the you know, think of trumpets, how they call people to attention, how they give signals to the army to, to get ready and march, etc., etc. This voice of a trumpet, Jesus, and here he invites John, he says, come on up to the heavenly throne room, just like if you ever watch the Price is Right, you know, the, come on down, you're the next contestant. Well, you know, here's Jesus, like, come on up, you're, you're, you're about to come into heaven and receive some visions, you know. And John's like, ooh, you know, whatever. But anyway, the voice of the trumpet inviting John into the very throne room to receive these visions. And then third, the invitation itself is to see what must, must take place after these things. And then John tells us that immediately I was in the spirit. Verse two, immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Now we've mentioned this before too, because John was in the spirit earlier in Revelation 1.10. And the idea of that is that John is experiencing sort of an ecstatic experience. He is experiencing this sort of like prophetic um, ecstasy of, if you will, as he is being uh, given the sight, in a sense, to see spiritual truths that he would then convey to his readers. And the first thing John sees as he is in the spirit is a throne standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Now, we talked a little bit about these visions before at the beginning, but while John really did have these visions... And he really did see these things, a throne and one sitting on the throne, etc. We need to understand that what John sees are symbolic realities. Okay, In other words, he is being given vision to see spiritual truths. Now, we don't need to literally take this that God is this guy sitting on a throne, literally. He's a spiritual being. God is, doesn't have a physical form. He doesn't have a physical throne. But this is an idea 
that what the, these thrones represent and what this all represents, namely, is that God is in sovereign control over all things. Think about the vision that uh, Isaiah gets in Isaiah chapter 6 when he sees God on his throne high and exalted. And he says the train of his robe filled the temple. I mean, does God have a robe with a train that literally fills a temple? No, it's a vision to give you an idea of the splendor and majesty and the sovereignty of God. And this is what he sees that conveys a spiritual truth. So when John gets to the one who is seated upon the throne, words then start to begin to fail him. They start to fail him. He, he just can't. It's almost like it's the division is so magnificent and splendid. He can't really describe it. As he's trying to describe the one sitting on the throne, he says he was like jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. You know, all these things. It looked like this. It had the appearance of this. It kind of looked like this. He's trying to describe this vision of God. And all he can say, is, well, okay, it's, it looks like jasper stone and sardius. And there's a rainbow and all these things. And he just can't really fully describe the vision that he sees. So he just starts to describe precious stones and jewels and rainbows. And again, we see similar things in these visions of prophets earlier. In Ezekiel chapter 1 again, verses 26 through 28 this time, where Ezekiel gets a vision. He says, Now above the expanse, that is the sky, that is over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli. So again, a throne that looks like the precious stone in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up, was a figure with an appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within, within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And then when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. So here, Ezekiel is given a vision of God. And what does he say? He says, Such was the appearance of the likeness. <laughs> the appearance of the likeness of the, of the glory of God. So, I mean, he's, he's not even being given a full vision of the glory of God. He's just given an appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And it's so overwhelming for him and his experience that he falls on his face. Such is the glory of God. Or Isaiah 6, 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. So John is, giving a, is getting a vision similar to this, and it's so magnificent that he, he can barely describe what he is seeing in proper terms. Now he also sees a rainbow, and Ezekiel mentioned a rainbow too. And the image of the rainbow is interesting. Because the rainbow is symbolic of God's covenant with Noah, right? When God made a covenant with Noah after the flood, he put his rainbow in the sky. It was a sign of the covenant to show that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood like he did during the flood. And here this idea of the rainbow is always representative of God's covenant promises. That he is faithful to his word, that he is faithful to his covenants, that he still remembers the covenants that he makes. All in all, it's a very, very impressive and spectacular vision that John is seeing here. So that's the one on the throne. Now, as we move to verses 4 through 7, we see those who are around the throne. And what would a good king be without attendance, right? A king needs a retinue. A king needs an entourage, right? He needs his people around him. He needs his servants. And that's what we see here in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. heads. So arrayed around God Almighty upon his throne are 24 thrones with 24 elders seated upon them. Now who are these 24 elders? One major school of thought is that the 24 elders represent the redeemed people of God. Okay, so you've got the two sets of 12, a combination of 12 tribes of Israel, 12, 12 disciples, or 12 apostles, so the complete people of God. 
And what kind of commends this view is the fact of their clothing. They're wearing white robes. Whenever we see white robes, you know, if you remember from the letters, white robes are given to those who overcome. The white robe represents Christ's righteousness being given to them. They're wearing golden crowns, which speak of the gifts, the reward that we get for uh, our, our obedience to God, that God graciously decides to reward us. So this seems to suggest the redeemed believers. Another major school of thought suggests that the 24 elders are angelic beings. And what supports this view is first, they are always mentioned in conjunction with the four living creatures that we're going to see in just a little bit. So whenever you see the four living creatures, they also say the 24 elders right next to them. They're always mentioned in conjunction with one another. Now, the four living creatures are clearly angelic beings. They're the, they're the cherubim. Okay. Now, the fact that these 24 elders are on thrones with God pictures them sort of as heavenly attendants or perhaps as being seen as sort of like a heavenly cabinet or a court of advisors. Now, a major point also in support of this view as seeing the 24 elders as not being redeemed believers can be seen in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8 and 10. So if you want to just flip over there real quick or might be on the same page if you're But in verse 8 of chapter 5, let's see. So it says, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they, that is the the four creatures and the 24 elders, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book. This is speaking to Jesus. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. So here the 24 elders are saying to Jesus that that, uh, the the redeemed, that, that you have made them a kingdom. They're, in other words, they're not referring to themselves as being part of the redeemed. They're referring to the, the redeemed in the third person. You have given to them redemption. You've given to them a kingdom. You've made them a kingdom of priests to our God. You have purchased for God your blood men from every tribe, tongue, and nation. They're not including themselves in that number of the redeemed. So they always distinguish themselves from the redeemed. Now, So those are your two main views. Combine redeemed people of God or angelic beings that give praise and worship with the four living creatures. I've given you the cases for both. What do you think now? Who says the the community of the redeemed? Who says they're angelic creatures? Okay, well. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's my view. So all in all, my vote is that they're angels that represent the entirety of God's people. So they're, they're much like the angels who represented the seven churches. So, but I, do, I think they're angels, and I think that they do. Their number seems to indicate that they represent are representative of the people of God in that sense. Now, more impressive is the heavenly light show that we see going on here in the throne room that we see in verse 5. So out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now we see in here now before the throne, lightning and thunder and peals and all this noise and this pyrotechnic light show going on in the throne room. And what would an appearance of God be like without a spectacular display of power and glory, right? Can anyone else think of a time where God appears with lightning and thunder and fire and shaking and earthquakes? On the mountain, right, exactly. In Exodus 19, verse 16, when the people of Israel are brought to the foot of Mount Sinai and God is just about to give the law to them, he comes down on the top of Mount Sinai and you get another similar light show. It says, so it came about on the third day, this is Exodus 19, 16. When it was morning, 
that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. This purpose of this show that we see here on Sinai, the purpose of this uh, demonstration that we see in the heavenly throne room is meant to inspire awe. Not like, you know, like awesome like the kids say, but like real, true awe and godly fear. The king of the universe is on his holy throne and he is about to initiate his divine plan of judgment. But we also see here before the throne, God's Holy Spirit, a vision of God's Holy Spirit. If you remember the sevenfold spirit of God we saw before, we see again here seven lamps of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. When we saw that before, we talked about how, again, that number seven represents the fullness of the spirit of God. I don't, I can go back in my references. I don't have the, the actual biblical reference, but I think there's a passage in Isaiah that actually lists seven aspects of the Holy Spirit of wisdom and power and so on and so forth, and it's seven of them. But here it's just representing the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So then moving from the 24 thrones with the 24 elders and past the seven spirits of God, then we see this sea of glass in verse 6. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. We'll get to the four living creatures later. I want to focus on the sea of glass right now. Again, John's language, notice his language, something like. It has the appearance of this and it's like this. Again, these are describing spiritual realities, not literal realities. So he sees something like a sea of glass. So not a literal sea made of glass. Okay, where you have to be careful if you set anything on it, it might break the glass. Don't worry about that. It may not even be a literal sea. Now, in Revelation 21, verse 1, skipping all the way to the end, (laughs) in Revelation 21, verse 1, in the new heavens and the new earth, we're told there that the sea is no more. In the new heavens and the new earth, there is no more sea. So what does this sea here in the throne room? Now, the meaning of that passage in Revelation 21.1, typically for the Jewish people, the sea represents chaos and evil. Everything bad came from the sea. In Revelation 13, when we get to see the first beast, the first beast rises up out of the sea. So the sea was representative of chaos, of evil, of danger, of troubles, and everything, which is why in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sea. There is not going to be anything of evil, anything of trouble, anything of chaos in the new heavens and the new earth. Now here, from the throne room, this apparent sea of glass then can be seen as essentially it's sort of like the floor of the heavenly throne room. Again, some Old Testament passages, if you want to jot these references down. Exodus 24.10. You don't need to turn to them, but I'll just read them because I've got them here. Exodus 24, 10. And they saw the God of Israel. This is the people, again, on Mount Sinai looking up where God was on the top. So they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Again, as they're on the ground looking up, they're seeing basically the floor of heaven, which is the ceiling of creation in a sense. In Ezekiel, again, chapter 1, says you, as, remember we told, when I told you at the beginning of Revelation, it's like, in order to understand Revelation really well, you need to understand Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, all these Old Testament prophets, because all these visions are kind of drawn from Old Testament prophets. Ezekiel one twenty two. Now over the heads of the living beings, there was something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystals spread out over their heads. Then later on in verse 26, now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne, like lapis lazuli in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with an appearance of a man. So looking up, they see a kind of a crystal, uh, you know, floor. But then, you know, going up above the floor is the throne on the floor. So the sea of glass is essentially 
the floor of heaven or the ceiling of creation. And it stretches out like a great sea of glass. And now we get to the interesting part, the four living creatures in verses 6 and 7. And in the center around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. The third creature had the face of, like that of a man, or instead of a calf, maybe an ox as well. The third creature had a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Now these creatures are very, very interesting <laughs> to, to behold indeed. They are full of eyes in front and behind. This indicates that while not omniscient like God is, their knowledge is vast and nothing escapes their notice. They have eyes all around. You know, if you, what, what is the old joke about mom when you were a kid, right? I have eyes in the back of my head. Now, did that mean you literally had eyes in the back of your head? No, it just means as, as a mom, you know what your kids are doing because... You know, you know, it's always dangerous when they're too quiet, or at least with some kids. Some kids, it's like if they're too noisy, that's dangerous. Some kids, if they're quiet, it's too dangerous. But as a mom, you have to have eyes in the back of your head, and you know what's going on. Well, they have eyes all over. Nothing escapes their gaze. And each creature that you see here re- resembles uh, sort of a different creature, like a man, a lion, an ox, or an eagle. And these features could be representative of various qualities of these living creatures. So like a lion would represent strength and power. The ox would represent service. The man would represent rationality or rational thought. And then the eagle would be sort of speedy and swift. And all of these creatures have all of these abilities. And then stealing a little bit from verse 8, they also have six wings, which are also full of eyes. Now, I mentioned this before, but these four living creatures are the cherubim. That's plural. So one would be a cherub. Now, when you think of a cherub, you see the, you know, the little like chubby babies with the little wings, right? You know, no. <laughs> Cherubs are very, very dangerous looking creatures, right? I mean, they have six wings. They're full of eyes. You know, they're like either like an ox or a lion or an eagle or a man. But these, um, these are mighty angelic creatures, and they are the guardians and the bearers of God's throne. In fact, in Ezekiel, they are actually seen as the throne carriers. So as God's throne moves, the cherubs are sort of like the wheels that kind of take God's throne all over creation. Now, while the exact image differed slightly, these heavenly attendants have been seen elsewhere in Scripture. Isaiah, again, 6.2 talks about the seraphim, slightly different, but they stood above him, the one who was on the throne. Each one of these seraphim had six wings, and the six wings each had a purpose. Two of them were being used to fly. Two of them were being used to cover the feet. Two of them were being used to cover the eyes. So those extra four wings were used to shield these seraphim from the unadulterated glory of God that was being shown forth. So even though these angels are superior creatures, even they have to be shielded from God's un, you know, unadulterated glory as it's, it, as it's being presented here. Again, Ezekiel 1.10. As for the form of their faces, this is, these are the living creatures. This is interesting because each of them had the face of a man. Uh, all four had the face of a lion on the right side, the face of a bull on the left, and all four had the face of an eagle. So, Whereas in Revelation, each one is, you know, one is a lion, one is a man, one is an ox, one is an eagle. In Ezekiel, the four living creatures had faces of all of them. The, all four of them were all over the place. So this image of the heavenly throne room with the angelic host creates a scene that really can only be used, can be described by one word. And that word is awesome. Again, not in the way the kids use awesome, but in the truly sense of a word that this scene inspires awe, it inspires fear, it inspires reverence. Now we come to the activity around the throne in verses 8 through 11. So after setting an amazing scene of power and glory and awesomeness in the heavenly throne room, John here next describes what goes on in the throne room, and that is worship. Worship 
Verse 8, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Now these four living creatures do nothing but praise God day and night, and the praise they offer is to ascribe holiness unto the Lord God Almighty. Again, this scene of worship sounds familiar is because it is familiar. Now I think I will have you turn to Isaiah chapter 6. So Isaiah chapter 6, this is the commissioning of Isaiah as a prophet. And what we see here in this vision is in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. Interestingly enough, now most Bibles, when you see the word Lord in the Old Testament, most of the time it's capitalized, L-O-R-D, which is representative of God's covenant name, Yahweh. Now, is it capitalized in your translation? I mean, all four caps? No, it's capital L, small O, small R, small R, small D, right? That is the word Adonai in Hebrew. That means sovereign, the master, the king, okay? So when the king died, I saw the king. That's what he's getting at here. That's, I saw the sovereign. I saw the master. I saw the, so, the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, same word, Adonai, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, in which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. So Isaiah gets this picture of God on his throne with the angelic host singing an antiphonal chorus. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You can turn back to Revelation 4 because then John himself invited into the heavenly throne room sees a similar vision as the cherubim and the 24 elders sit there again in ceaseless praise, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. God's holiness here, let's talk about that for a moment. I may have said it before, but of of all of God's attributes, holiness is probably God's defining attribute. It's the one that is most ascribed to him. Now, the reason I say defining is because the primary meaning of holiness is separateness or otherness, something that is completely different. To quote from Monty Python, and now for something completely different, I give you God who is completely different from everything. God is holy, that is W-H-O-L-L-Y, completely other when compared to his creation. Interestingly enough, has anybody heard of the guy Cornelius Van Til? Cornelius Van Til was a Presbyterian minister, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, He was the father of what we call presuppositional apologetics. And when he taught at Westminster uh, Theological Seminary, he would always start every single class. He'd go to the chalkboard and he'd draw two circles. And he would say, God and everything else. God is separate from his creation. There is nothing in all of creation that is God because God is completely separate. He is other than his creation. And the reason he does that is because all the other errors tend to want to either mix God with creation, like pantheism. God is 
you know, every, you know, God is in all and is all or deism, which is which God is sort of he creates and then he goes off and doesn't care anymore. Well, this our view is God is separate from creation, but he is he is actively involved in working and sustaining and providing and guiding his creation all along. In a word, God is transcendent. He is transcendent. In a very real way, God is everything we are not, right? We are finite. We are temporal. We are changeable. Changing all the time, right? I mean, I'm getting older. I'm getting, I'm either losing weight or gaining weight. You know, things change on me. My hair is getting grayer, okay? My beard is getting longer, all these things. I am, I am not... You know, I'm, I'm finite. I'm limited in time and space. I, I'm part of time. I'm subject to time. Every time I wake up and my back hurts, that just reminds me of the ravages of time on my body, right? But God is none of these things. In fact, we describe God by virtue of his not being bound by time or space. As such, then, we call God infinite. God is eternal. God is immutable, unchangeable. But secondly, God's holiness also speaks of his absolute purity. God is righteous and always acts righteously. God is pure and completely unstained and untainted by evil. What does the prophet Habakkuk say? He says, you are too holy for your eyes to even look upon evil. So the four living creatures never cease to praise the thrice holy God. Holy, holy, holy who is eternal, who was, who was and is and is to come. Now, if anybody's ever heard R.C. Sproul talk about the holiness of God and talks about that passage in Isaiah, he also references the fact that when, you know, the Hebrew language wanted to emphasize something, if they wanted to either italicize it or bold it or underline it, they didn't do those things. They just repeated things. So if you saw repetition, that was an emphasis If you saw three times being repeated, that was emphasis to the superlative degree. So God is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy, but he is holy, holy, holy. He is very extraordinarily holy. And that's what the angels do here. They never cease to praise the holiness of God. And it's not just the four living creatures who offer glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, but the 24 elders also want to join in on the praise. They're like, hey, don't leave us out. We want to get in on this praise train too. So let's offer our own praise to God. As they fall down before him, whenever the four living creatures offer praise to God, the 24 elders join in by falling down before the one who is seated on the throne, which is a sign of complete submission. They worship him. They cast their crowns before the throne in acknowledgement that God alone is the true sovereign. He is the king. And that is also acknowledgement that everything that we have, everything they have, was been given to them by God. And all the heavenly host ceaselessly gives praise to the eternal God. And note how often his eternality is mentioned here. Oftentimes, he who lives uh, forever and ever, who lives forever and ever, who was and is and is to come. They're constantly talking about God being eternal, not bound by time and space. And the 24 elders have their own praise chorus they want to throw in too here where they say, worthy are you, our Lord and God, in verse 11, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. God is supremely worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And his worthiness is based on him being the creator and sustainer of everything. Now, what is the purpose of this vision that is given to John? Why does John, before he starts to get a vision of the things that are to come, why is he given this vision of the heavenly throne room, which will be in next time as well? I see two purposes. The first is, after seeing the state of the church in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, it's meant to inspire hope. It is meant to inspire hope. Because despite everything that's going on that threatens the church, God is in control. You read those letters and you see that the church is in a mess. Most of those churches were in a mess. They were either being persecuted from without, as they were being uh, persecuted by 
by the world around them as they were being tormented and tortured and, and beaten and killed and martyred. Or they were being tormented within by false teaching. The church was a mess, but it is God who is in control. So John gets his vision to show, look, I am still in control. Despite what you see in the state of the church right now, I am the one who is in control. He is not asleep. He is not silent. He is not passive. He's ruling and reigning as he has for all eternity. And again, think back to that vision in Isaiah 6. When uh, the prophet uh, is called into the temple and he sees the vision of God, that scenario started how? How did that verse start? It said, in the year that King Uzziah died. He's, you know, King Uzziah lived and reigned over Israel for 52 years. 52 years. That's like 13 presidential terms. 52 years. Imagine, imagine if... FDR didn't die in 1944. He would have probably been reelected 13 times, okay? I mean, as it was, they were, that's why they enacted the 20-whatever amendment that limited two, ter- two terms. But anyway, 52 years is a long time to have a king. I mean, think about you know, Queen Elizabeth. She's been in power since 1952, right? So that's 48, 58, 68... 69, 69 years, I think, right? If my math is right. 69 years. Now imagine the state that England would be in if Queen Elizabeth died. They would be in mourning for weeks. 69 years. Well, 52 years. The king is dead. Now, so when the king dies in Israel, this is a time of great chaos and and tumult as, as now you've got this power vacuum. And Isaiah now is given this vision. When the king died, I got a vision of the real king, the one who is really on the throne. It doesn't matter what's happening down here because God is up there on his throne, high and lifted up with his train filling the whole temple. Same thing here. The church is being persecuted without. The church is being ravaged within by false teaching. Yet God is on his throne. He is in charge. He is going to vindicate his faithful. He will bring it to a faithful end. There's no need to worry. Now, the second purpose is we see this throne room image here, this vision, because God is about to judge. He is getting ready to judge the world. That We'll see this again in two weeks when we look at Revelation chapter 5. But that scroll with seven seals that is given to Jesus will start to be opened in Revelation 6. And each of those seals that are broken starts to unleash God's judgment upon the world as God is finally going to judge the wicked. He's going to finally bring vindication to all those who have offered their faithful testimony to Christ. So when you see these visions of God on his throne and getting ready now to move in judgment and vindication, what can be more comforting to God's suffering people? 